We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.
All right, folks, welcome back to a bankroll challenge builder show. We were off for week 16. I was at home in Colorado and decided to put the grind on hold for a little bit, but we are back with a vengeance. I have a guest that I'm very excited to have on. Uh, You guys might know him as PSU fans too. His name is Sean Newsom. He is a high stakes reg and he is going to get us on the straight and narrow for this slate. Sean, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to getting getting after it today. I, I figured you needed a little bit of break. You do a little bit too much stuff with Davis. I figured you needed to to up your brand a little bit with me coming on. That's right. You know, I need to ditch the zero, get with the hero. Uh, that's what we're doing here today. If we look at my bankroll challenge graph, we had quite the hot streak there, weeks 12 through 14. I mean, we were on a meteoric rise. And then weeks 15 through 17, we have crashed back down to earth as I add the red background filter to last week. So Sean, we got to get me back in the green here because the goal at first was just, the first goal was to win a tournament. The second goal was just to survive the season. And then I won and I was like, no, the goal is to be profitable in the single entry bankroll challenge. So do you think you can help me get there? Yeah. I mean, we've already had a $600 win on your sheet. So I don't see why we can't get a thousand dollar win and put you ahead for the season. I mean, you never know. The sky's the limit this week. That's right. That's right. So first of all, why don't you, for people who aren't familiar, I know you do a lot of college uh, football stuff. I know you're big in the preseason slates. What kind of uh, contest selections uh, are you making in the NFL season generally? Uh, Generally for me, I will play one lineup um, during the regular season. During the preseason, I'll fire 150 at certain GPPs. But during the regular season, I really focus on one. And a lot of that is because I'm generally usually really fried after Saturdays with college football. So I generally will make my best lineup I can for the Thursday night slates. Uh, some I do play some showdowns as well. And then the mains and the early onlys, I'll usually make my best lineup. So for me, my focus is on making that one optimal lineup, making sure it's as good as it can possibly be, and then letting it roll for the week. And then I'll usually get between five and ten grand a slate off um, not as much as some people, but I try to keep my NFL volume around the same throughout the whole course of the season. And then, so when you are focusing on that one optimal lineup, are obviously I assume that's a lot for cash. Are you putting that into single entry and three max type stuff as well? Yeah. So I enter it into all the GPPs, all of the single entries, all the single entry double ups. And then I also play head to head cash. So for me, I don't really focus on it as a tournament line. I just play it in the tournaments in case it has the upside. Um, and it does usually come through a couple times a year. I know last year, I think I had two scores where it was in single entry contests, one or two uh, near the top. So I had really good scores in that. So for me, I play all the single entry GPPs. I believe 300 and lower is usually what I go with. So how do you think about that? Because that is, you know, I see a lot of uh, you high stakes rigs and, you know, I see you or Empire Maker and a lot of you guys are just dropping in your optimal uh, cash game lineup in like the spy where, where I'm playing. Are you ever, do you ever look at ownership percentages when you're doing that? Are you just building the best possible lineup and, and disregarding that for your cash game purposes? For me, I'm generally just regarding it. Um, I, if I look at my lineup a lot of the weeks, I have no one under 30, 35% owned. It used to be different. It used to be where I'd get guys that were 10 and 20%. Even sometimes this year, I have guys that are lower owned, which then gives me the edge and they end up being my most important player on the slate. Um, as this year sort of came, the pricing has just been really, really poor overall on the entire season. And so it's generally forced a lot of people onto very similar constructions where it's usually a 2v2 or a 3v3, uh, which has limited my upside in GPPs, unfortunately. Uh, in past years, I've had really good showing in single entry GPPs with my number one cash lineup because it just didn't have as much overlap as it currently does. Uh, if I was focusing more on tournaments and more on a few different lineup constructions, I would pay attention to the ownership percentages, and that would sort of dictate ideas where I go. But that said, I usually have good ideas where the ownership's going to lie so I can make sort of decisions. But my decisions might be more different sometimes than everyone else. And my decisions might be based on so-and-so is going to be a little bit higher owned than another guy. But I think that with this construction, it makes more sense. So I will go that player. So say for your purposes, let's say if um, all of a sudden for this week, you were only going to play the spy 
I assume you'd still start with your optimal lineup. And let's just say your goal, though, is not just to capture any upside if there happens to be some, but to, you know, ship the spy. What would be the tweaks or the pivots you would start to look to make off of the optimal? Basically, I'm just wondering how much would you be looking to shake that up to give yourself a chance to get first? So what I think would be the most optimal strategy, and I, I've talked about this, one of my good buddy Joe Holka in DFS, uh, he does this as well, is he generally makes his optimal and then makes a couple small tweaks to get yourself differentiation. So for me, if I was trying to take down the spy and I was focusing, I would still make a very optimal approach from my perspective, especially on sort of shallow slates. A lot of the time, the chalk goes off and you need the chalk in order to do well in the GPP. And with there only being a couple games, there's a lot more people that are going to carry higher ownership than if it was a 13 or 14 game slate. So for me, the main things I would look at would probably be looking at the receivers and the quarterbacks and possibly changing spots in that range and sort of getting differentiation there. And then also with defenses, I think defense is a really good spot to get differentiation from people. People generally will go towards one or two lower owned or lower price defenses so if you can sort of differentiate at defense or let's say your second or third receiver spot, that could be all you need to go with a more optimal approach to get you differentiation. And then if the chalk does have a good week, you're in a good spot to be up near the top of leaderboards. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think that's kind of been a thing I've struggled with is I kind of go back and forth between like, oh, I fall in love with, you know, like a stack that I want to build around. Or I start with like, you know, looking at say what Cardi has in his optimal and then starting to make tweaks from there. But I guess I've just never fully standardized my process. But it sounds like you would recommend really starting with the optimal. And and I've seen, you know, Andrew Wiggins with his stuff. I know he does that similarly. Holka, you mentioned, it seems like that that's what you guys are doing. Start with the best plays, then look for those just really subtle tweaks to make sure you don't have a duplicated lineup. Correct. And I, I think that's the best way to do it. And I think that if you do it right, you can find yourself in situations where you get a play that let's say you get a receiver, you might have a receiver at 6K that's going to be 30 or 40% owned in your optimal, but you can make that 1v1 swap onto a guy that's 5% owned. And that can really be a differential that can really propel you up without going completely off the board. That said, there's also obviously game stacks. If you're going to do a game stack, you can do one or two receiver game stack, and then you bring it back. So there's always going to be spots bringing it back. In a slate like this where there's only four games, you're probably bringing it back anyways naturally in a game in a situation because there's only so many games. Yeah. How much, um, one of the things that I've been, you know, wrestling with, and I guess to make it specific for this slate. So say I like the bills and I like Allen, I like Singletary, I like Brown and I like Beasley, but I know I maybe don't want to jam all of those guys who, how are you, what's the process you're going about assuming, you know, price is relatively similar across those three skill position players. How are you deciding which of those guys you employ if you are leaning toward a little bit of a stack? So the bills are maybe a little bit more tricky just because John Brown's obviously the more upside play for them. And Cole Beasley is not, although Cole's been really good with yards after catch this year. And Brown hasn't been as big of a deep threat as he hasn't been in previous years. But the way that I would look at that is like, let's say you want to only play one of them, right? And let's just focus on the receivers for a minute. So you have John Brown and you have Cole Beasley. So what I would try to do, if they were the exact same player with the exact same sort of upside and situation, what I would try to do is find out which one is going to be more highly owned. So if you're projecting John Brown to be 31% and you're expecting Cole Beasley to be 25% and they're the same price, what I would try to do is play the lower uh, owned one and then sort of move the other one off of him. So for example, you could play... Cole Beasley, and then instead of John Brown, if let's say you have 6,100, you could play DK Metcalf. Um, and it all sort of depends on your salary ranges as well. Certain ranges are going to have more easy swaps that you can make than other ranges. Like if you look on this sheet right here that we have, there's no one really in the 5,600 range. So it's really hard to swap a 1v1s type spot off of Cole Beasley. However, you have a couple people right around that 6K range. You have DK Metcalf. You have a guy like Adam Thielen, who's sort of been really putrid lately, but he's been really good in previous seasons, and it's a situation where they're probably going to have to throw a decent amount of game. All of a sudden, if you have that extra 200, you can easily swap off Brown, where you don't really have that ability off Beasley. 
Yeah, one just interesting note, and I'm sure we're going to get in the weeds on some of these players. One thing that kind of blew my mind about Thielen is he actually eclipsed Diggs last week in snaps and routes per dropback. So he could be kind of sneaky this week uh, in that range as well. Um, all right, let's start out. What do we got going over in the chat? The chat is talking about fading Texans wide receivers. Uh, people are interested in Hopkins. I guess this is a good, you know, I want to go over this uh, kind of position by position, but what is your stance? If we're heavy on bills, um, how are you approaching the Texan situation? It looks like Fuller's not going to play. We know they love to ram Carlos Hyde into the line. Uh, and we've seen new Hopkins have massive target shares when Fuller's not in. What's your thoughts on this side? Yeah. So I think from a GPP perspective and trying to get a little bit of differential, this is actually a good spot to do so. Uh, if we assume we're going to play Michael Thomas, it's really hard to get up to DeAndre Hopkins. Tredavious White may or may not shadow um, Hopkins. I've seen different reports. I've seen reports that he's only going to play a side, and then I've seen reports where he's going to shadow. So if we think he's going to get shadowed and we think Will Fuller's out, all of a sudden you can go right back to the good old Kenny Stills bandwagon and possibly get Kenny Stills at lower ownership at a much reduced price point to where New Hopkins is. And that could be your potential bring back situation in the Bills game. Yeah. And I think that's smart because how many people have Kenny Stills burned? You know, it seems like when all the cash guys were on him, he flopped and then he has the flop lag the next week. So Stills will probably be really under owned here. Yeah. I think Kenny Stills is going to be quite under owned. And if, Tredavious White is going to shadow. There's really only one option, and that option is Kenny Stills. So it's definitely a situation where I think that if you're playing Michael Thomas, again, if you're not playing Michael Thomas, which I'm not going to recommend doing, um, it's going to put you in a situation where playing Nuke is really difficult to do. Yeah, and let's, I guess, just hammer that point home about Michael Thomas. So uh, the guys over here at Roto Grinders, uh, everyone knows that when Michael Thomas is at home in the Dome, Cardi and the projections are going wild on him. He's popping in the blitz as, you know, the best points per dollar play. I think Cardi hasn't projected for an 11 and a half catches. Um, so, yeah, I, is there any possible discussion to fade him or is he the free square and you move on? I do think in terms of GPP, there is a possibility to fade him. However, if you're making one lineup and your objective is to win a tournament, Minnesota doesn't really have anyone that can guard him. He's going to probably be your safest points on the day. I can't recommend not playing him. You're going to have a guy that's going to get 15 or so targets. They're not going to blow a team out, so he's going to play the whole game. He's probably going to get you 10 for 101 or more. Um, a lot of the time. So like you're looking at a guy that's probably going to get you 25 to 30 points a good portion of the time. It's really hard to talk about fading him when there just really aren't other good options on the slate. If it was a situation where we had other alternatives that were very solid, you could more look at that, but there just isn't that option. And then how do you um, approach then the situation with Kamara? Similarly with MT, Cardi always has Kamara highly projected at home. In his optimal, you're playing both Kamara and Michael Thomas. Is that the same for you, or is there a little more opportunity cost there with both Kamara and MT? I think Kamara is more fadeable, um, more so because his volume is going to be more similar to what his surroundings are. Um, Dalvin Cook, Devin Singletary, these guys could have similar touch volume to him. So I think if you're going to fade one of the Saints guys, and again, I'm not necessarily recommending that because I think I probably will be playing both. Um, you really could fade Kamara for some of these other alternatives. All right, let's talk about the man. Uh, we got Cobra in the chat talking about Derrick Henry. It's uh not D Hember anymore, but there is a storm coming to new England that is literally named Henry apparently. Uh, so everyone has that, you know, walk off, uh, you know, rushing title touchdown run in their heads from last week. He is so expensive. Uh, is there any path to playing him at this price in this ownership as a road dog, or is he just going to make us all look like idiots for continuing to fade him? I think there is a possibility to fade him, and I actually don't think he's that bad of a GPP play. However, I think in order to do so, you're going to have to fade Kamara and Dalvin Cook, or you're going to have to fade Michael Thomas. But if we are in a situation where Tennessee wins this game, 
and wins this game, let's say from start to finish, let's say Tennessee holds this game, which I don't think is going to happen, but I think it is a possibility. If that is something that happens, Derrick Henry could get 30 carries for 200 yards and two touchdowns. Nobody is going to match that at running back this week whatsoever. Um, that said, I think if you're playing Derrick Henry, you cannot play another guy on Tennessee. And I think that it's hard to bring him back with anyone other than maybe like James White because they're going to be trailing in this situation. So if you're playing Derrick Henry, you have to be playing it from a complete game flow perspective in that game. And you have to be on the opinion that Tennessee is going to lead that game from virtually start to finish, and they're probably going to score four to five touchdowns. Uh, That's how you play Derrick Henry. But I think it's going to be a possibility that you can force him in there. I just don't know if it's necessarily the best option. Right. And how do you normally sift? So, you know, when you're building these optimal lineups, how do you sift through narratives? A popular narrative is the Patriots sell out to stop your best option. Uh, They're going to bottle up Derrick Henry. They're going to double team AJ Brown, and they're going to make you beat them with Corey Davis and Johnny Smith. Do you buy into that kind of line of thought, or are you just looking at uh, the projections mainly here? You know, I'll definitely buy into some narratives. If they make sense, uh, it's, it's definitely something I'll focus on. If you have guys that absolutely hate a team and they come back, I'll definitely consider them. And, and narratives sort of work. Narratives help you build your lineup. If you think a game is going to play out a certain way, like, for example, if you think that New England is going to stack the box and then bracket A.J. Brown, which is definitely a possibility, and Corey Davis is going to be the only way to beat them, it makes sense to play Corey Davis. So I think you can definitely look at narratives and sort of help build your construction. Um, a good way to do that is sort of how do you expect a game to play out? If you expect a game to play out a certain way, then it sort of helps you build the lineup away. If you think that a team is going to stack the box and force a team to throw to beat them, all of a sudden that increases the receivers and the quarterback in that game. If you think a team is going to sit there and play like eight in their defensive backfield and force a team to run, then you sort of can adjust it that way. So I definitely think narratives can help and they can help dictate the lineup, but you don't want to go too overboard with them either. Yeah. Uh, we got people talking about the Patriots wide receiver side. You know, it's been interesting. Uh, Edelman's snaps and usage has actually been going up over this stretch when he's been injured. Uh, his production just quite hasn't quite been there, whereas Sanu and Harry have seen a little uptick in their their snaps and, and routes per drop back. What are you doing uh, with this team? And are you are you convinced that Edelman can give us kind of classic Edelman production this weekend? Um, I think Edelman's fine. I think what the Patriots were doing recently, I think they were just sort of chilling and then expecting to just beat Miami and get their bye, which backfired on them. But I think that Edelman's going to be normal Edelman. Um, I think that you can also possibly play one of their cheaper receivers. When I've looked at the roster construction so far, for me, Edelman seems to be a difficult person to get in, but Sanu looks like a possibility in certain builds that it might be someone we have to look at a little bit more. Yeah, Sanu was popping when I was running the Blitz Optimal. He was in there. It feels gross. I, I definitely got burned last week. I had a Brady to Sanu uh, stack, and it looked like it should have gotten there. I mean, Sanu was definitely getting some targets. He looked bad. They missed in the in the red zone. Uh, do you, Sanu definitely feels a little safer. Do you think Harry has the kind of upside though, that could really smash at, at his price tag? I liked Nikhil Harry. I loved him at Arizona state. Um, I, he's just got a lot of talent. He hasn't shown the ability to smash yet in the pros. Um, that said, I do think that it's a possibility. There's only so many targets that are going to go around in new England. And the problem is, is Edelman's going to eat a lot of them, I think. And then James white, I think will eat quite a few of them as well. So you're definitely going to have to pick and choose between the Patriots receivers. I don't think you can play really Harry and, um, and Sanu. I think that's more of a situation in which you can't really do that, but I think one of them could definitely get there. And, And again, this is sort of a four-game condensed slate that there really isn't many options at the lower price point. Sometimes the way pricing works out, a lower price point, a guy that's like 3,800, you need like 15 points out of him. A solid game here, like four for 50, might come into play and might be a solid option for you on a given week like this because there's just not much down there. Yeah. 
What about the the running backs? You know, the issue, we've talked about it a lot this year, the three-man backfields get really gross. So there's a lot of backfields that can support two running backs. Rex Burkhead's really been kind of the fly in the ointment here, stealing away some work from both White and Michelle. I did notice Sony Michelle was popping in the Blitz Optimal. Uh, obviously, no pass-catching upside there. How are you handling this Patriots running back situation? It's difficult with Michelle right now because his volume has been pretty decent, but he's game script dependent. All their running backs are sort of game script dependent. Um, And and all of a sudden, like you just said, Burkhead could get all the the carries. It's New England. We don't really know. Um, That said, Sonny Michelle at 4,600 with the lack of running back and the lack of value, I think definitely is going to be an option at running back. White is also an option, but again, I think you need to buy into the fact that Tennessee is going to be winning this game if you're playing a guy like James White. Otherwise, is he really going to get the volume that you need for him to be productive? Uh, the last month or so, James White really hasn't seen the target volume that you would need to play someone like him at his price point. Yeah. Yeah, and Silva had an interesting stat in his column. I think he said the Titans have allowed the third most catches to running backs on the season. I think it was like 103, which obviously looks good for White. It's just a bummer when you're, you know, I'm looking at these targets here over the past, you know, four weeks, and and Rex Burkhead is just right there behind White in targets, which really, you know, when we're playing White, we want that high floor, and, and Burkhead's eating into that. Yeah, and the issue with James Way is, like, we're looking at his target volume. He really doesn't run the ball much. So, like, let's say you get three to four carries from James White, which is basically what we would expect, and you get four to six targets. Problem is, is I can go out to Seattle and play Homer and probably get more in both categories than James White at a similar price point. So it becomes a situation where would I be more comfortable just playing Homer and not really worrying about the New England backfield? Um, because I don't really think that Marshawn Lynch is going to be able to carry a full workload because he just hasn't been active and he hasn't been playing. So if you have a situation, you can expect sort of, I think, five to seven carries maybe with Homer. I think you can uh, expect six to eight targets with Homer. I think you could sort of look more at Travis Homer than what you would look at with James White. Yeah, let's bounce over to that game. I agree completely because now we're again talking about a backfield Uh, that's just two guys and we know Lynch isn't going to steal any of that pass work in the Eagles I believe you can correct me if I'm wrong have been pretty stout against the run this year so getting Travis Homer uh, catching those passes obviously the full point PPR that that's attractive to me and not there's no that Robert Turbin isn't eating into that work like Rex Burkhead is correct yeah like you're not going to expect Robert Turbin to play so all of a sudden you have Marshawn Lynch and Travis Homer that's it um, Marshawn can't really have 25 carries. I mean, I guess he could, it wouldn't be out of this world for him to do that, but you have a situation. If you get 10 carries from home or you get eight targets, that's a really, really solid production that you can get for 5,300. And we just said James White's 5,700 Homer's 5,300 James White's expected to have slightly better ownership than Travis Homer. Travis Homer is in the late game. A big thing with this type of playoff slate It's all about adjusting as things go. If things go poorly for you early, you can sort of change your lineup and make it very much more contrarian to give yourself more of an ability to win. If the early games go really well for you, you can play a little bit more chalky. So by delaying your decision, it can really help you as well because it gives you more options to do with that spot as well. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. Homer's a guy I want to take a much longer look at. Um, And like you said, it gives you the flexibility depending being in that last game if you leave enough salary to pivot to him. Let's talk about the wide receivers on Seattle. I think they're a little interesting. DK Metcalf had the big target spike last week, up to 12 targets versus Locke at seven. It looks like a little bit of an anomaly in the context of the whole season, and yet his snaps and his usage has really spiked since Josh Gordon left. So how are you viewing the the Metcalf versus Lockett? Because I think both of them are in pretty good spots. Yeah, I think both of them are playable. Uh, Seattle is a little bit more maddening because they don't like to throw the ball. They want to run the ball down your throat. And they are very inconsistent with what players are going to get. I know week 16, everyone was mad because they were trailing the whole game, just kept running the ball. And a lot of people played Metcalf and or um, Lockett on that week. And they really didn't get any production from them because they just didn't get targets or they just didn't get production on the targets. So 
Seattle's a team that does not want to throw. They don't like to throw that much. And then you're sort of going to be an issue with their targets. So for me, Seattle receivers are a little bit of a tricky subject because it's just really hard to pinpoint who's going to get the targets on a given week and how many they'll get. Yeah. Yep, that makes sense. And right now we have Metcalf at 18% ownership, Lockett at 15%. Obviously, you're paying an extra 1100 more for Lockett. So I guess when I look at that, if the ownership is that close, we're probably taking the $1,100 discount there, right? Yeah, Ben, I totally agree with that. And, and it goes into the construction we talked about. Michael Thomas this week is going to really, really hinder what you can do with lineups because if you play Michael Thomas – you really are only going to have one other spot to get up at, which you're probably going to need to use a running back. So getting back up at receiver is going to be really difficult uh, going into this week. So you, you sort of are going to have difficulties playing like a guy like Hopkins and or Lockett if you're playing Michael Thomas, which, again, we would sort of probably recommend playing Michael Thomas because of what he's going to get you. Yep. All right, guys, I am going – We I was going to ask Sean a question about – this Eagles side because there's so much going on here, but I'm just looking at this pitiful amount of likes on this video, only 10 likes. And I, uh, Sean, if you don't mind, I'm going to withhold the goods until these people smash the like button. Are you okay with this hostage situation? Yeah. I mean, you have to smash like button and subscribe. It's the only way to work on YouTube. If you're not doing that, I mean, you just can't get the goods out of stuff. That's right. And I actually, I had a tweet about this today that it's in my new year's resolution to smash the the like button more this year. And I hope you guys share that resolution with me. So yeah, I mean, Sean and I will just sit here in silent protest. You told me you have nothing else going the entire night, right? No, literally I can sit around all day. I, I have very little going on. Yeah. I mean, we could, you could even go get your dog. Uh, mm-hmm. Very. What was your dog's name? Barkley after Bar- Saquon. Is it really named after it, Saquon? It's a girl, but it is, she is named after Saquon. So I had to pass my fiance's cute test. Okay. So I named, I'm like, what if we named her Barkley, which passed the cute test. The funny thing was she thought it was named after Charles, who I was shocked she knew who <laughs> Charles Barkley was. <laughs> but of course, apparently that's because of Space Jam is who she knew who Charles Barkley was. I would yeah. never have guessed that. And I don't know. I saw your dog pre-show and I don't know if his quads uh, or her quads were as thick. No, I, they definitely are not. She's very tall and lanky. We had her groomed about four weeks ago. That was her first grooming, and she came back, and they cut her really short. She basically, basically looked like a tall, awkward teenage girl because she just was tall and lanky and had nothing else going on. There you go. All right, we 3X'd our uh, likes, so I will release the rest of the show. Congratulations, but I do reserve the right to withhold more of the show uh, at any given time. Let's talk about the Eagles. There's, they probably, of any team, have the most moving pieces as far as injury stuff. It looks like, um, you know, Ertz is officially questionable. Sanders says he's going to play. How are you handling the Sanders-Boston Scott in the Ertz-Goddard situation? Because it obviously has some huge impacts for lineups. Yeah, from what I saw, what I'm looking at, it looks like Sanders is going to play. It looked like Aguilar is probably not going to play. It looked like Ertz was questionable, probably leaning towards no. So for me, I wish Miles Sanders was out. If Miles Sanders was out, we could all just play Boston Scott and have a great time because he's very active in the pass game and he's ran the ball 18 times last week, which is funny because, I mean, he's pretty similar in size to Davis. So watching (laughs) a guy like that pound the ball up the middle 20 times in a game seems kind of weird, but – um, so I wish he was out with him being in, I think you can still play Boston Scott maybe, but it's more for a term and option. Um, and then Goddard with them having such a lack of receiving core anyways, I think Goddard is in play anyways. I think the person that really hurts is Josh Perkins. Perkins yeah. had a pretty solid game last week with a touchdown. He had six targets. So I think that if God or if Ertz is out, Josh Perkins is squarely in play. Whereas if he's in Perkins, isn't even an option at all. Yeah, and it seems like the way they've been using Perkins is just kind of that hierarchy of, you know, when Zach Ertz is playing, there's the Goddard role. Goddard graduates to the Ertz role, and Perkins slides into the old Goddard role, which still makes him at his price tag uh, very relevant for DFS if Ertz doesn't play. As far as DFS, I kind of hope Ertz 
suits up uh, just because, I mean, he was just cleared for contact or maybe he hasn't even been cleared yet. So to me, it seems like Goddard's still going to be the focal point of the, of that offense. Yeah. I hope Ertz suits up. And I think if he suits up it makes Goddard an even better play, which is kind of weird. And you wouldn't think that'd be the case, but I think if he plays and he could possibly run out there as a decoy, if he runs out there as a decoy, Goddard could really, really have a strong game. So I think that that is definitely an option. The the alternative option is you could possibly double stack the tight ends from Philadelphia in this game in a lineup. There's a possibility of having like a double tight end lineup with both tight ends being from Philadelphia. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Goddard is uh, definitely jumping out in the blitz uh, cardiasm with the highest ceiling and floor combination on DraftKings and the best points per dollar play by a lot. So I think the only thing at this point we're worried about is ownership and getting the Zach Ertz active would really help that out. Cause we have him at 36% there is there for, you know, single entry GPP purposes. Is there uh, a number threshold that would make you uneasy to play Goddard or is he close to a lock button for you? Um, probably there is not a number that would worry me off him because if he goes out there and puts up eight for 90 and a touchdown, no tight end getting within 20 points of him. Um, maybe not 20, but 15 points is going to be really difficult. So there's not really a number that would worry me off Goddard. However, I don't think he's a lock button just because I think there's some validity in the going possibly Perkins or possibly Hollister. I probably won't play Hollister, but I think you could possibly punt all the way down and it would free you up to get up at receiver a little bit more, which might be something you would want to do. Um, so for me, there's not really a number. If Goddard was going to be projected at like 60%, which I think he's going to be more like 50 to 60% in the higher dollar tournaments. Uh I think it's still fine because he could easily put away all the other tight ends. And there's really not a situation in which any of the other tight ends can fully put him away. If he has 10 points, it's going to be hard for any tight end to put up a 25 and really put him to death. Yeah. And as far as ceiling, I would say the only tight end that can really match him is, is Jared cook. And even that would require, you know, stealing some of those red zone looks away from MT and Kamara, which he has done over the past few weeks at times. Yeah, Jared Cook's kind of mad, and you watch him, and I, I know Thanksgiving, everyone was driven nuts because he just put, like, the easiest touchdowns in the world on the floor. And then last week, I think it was last week, he had just an obnoxious catch for a touchdown. Uh, J- that's been Jared Cook's whole career. Jared Cook's hands, he dropped some of the easiest touchdowns and catches ever, and then he just comes up with a miracle catch that you're just like, how does this guy do this when he can't catch a wide-open 20-yard out that just hits him square in the hands with no one near him? Yeah, and you look at his box where he's been so efficient. It's not like the targets are massive, but it's like two targets, two TDs, four targets, two TDs. So not a ton to hang your hat on there, but probably going to be a pretty good leverage play if you are you know, doing some, some bigger GPP stuff. What's your thought on the Eagles-Seahawks uh, game just from like a pure perspective on, on game flow? It's obviously the closest spread uh, it seems like sentiments are on both sides for who's going to who's gonna kind of command that game. Do you see that as like a potential shootout game, or do you like a side there? I don't really think it can get you a shootout just because if it's close, Seattle's going to run the ball so much, which makes it difficult for the game to shoot out. Um, I, I think that there could be points. Um, if there are points, though, they could be from either side of things. Uh, I think it's a really close game. I definitely think that that game's relatively close. I think Buffalo game is really close. I actually like the Bills. I, I am a Bills fan slash was a Bills fan. Nowadays, I more just care about making money than I do about the Bills winning. But I think the Bills have a pretty good chance to get their first playoff win since, like, I don't know, I was probably still not born or something. Yeah. So uh, I think those two games are going to be close. I think that the Minnesota game actually has the chance to shoot out the most because I think Minnesota can beat New Orleans deep possibly. And if they beat New Orleans deep, I think they're going to have a very difficult time matching up with new orleans defensively so i think that game actually has a decent shootout potential yeah and that's good segue because that's the game we haven't talked about a ton we've talked about obviously the the marquee saints players but yeah if you are you know approaching uh the vikings or you are identifying this as a shootout spot in the dome uh are you do you prefer to jam in dalvin or pick one of those receivers I think that this week is a really good situation to bring this game back with one of the receivers. Um, I think that New Orleans struggles a little bit on deep passes. I think that Thielen's not going to be owned at all. And like you talked about, 
there's not much difference between the two. I think that one of those guys could have a really big game, and I don't think the ownership's going to represent that as well at all. And if you're playing Kamara and Michael Thomas, which my plan is to probably play Kamara and Michael Thomas, it's a really good spot for a bring back, especially in a tournament situation where you're trying to get that upside. Yeah, so if we look again at our price and our ownership projections, we got Diggs at 6.6, Thielen 6.2, Thielen 14%, Diggs at 19. So pretty close, but it looks like you're getting a salary and ownership discount on Thielen. Is that where we're going to break the tie, similar to kind of the Metcalf Lockett situation? Yeah, and I actually think that the ownership percentages are going to be off here. I think that Michael Thomas is going to be substantially higher than the 37% that is showing. And if he's higher, I think he's going to be 50 to 60% owned. But the problem is, is what that does is it really makes hitting that 6K plus receiver range very difficult. Um, I think the two highest receivers on the slate in terms of ownership percentage are probably going to be like Michael Thomas and maybe even Corey Davis, who isn't even up here. Because if Michael Thomas takes over that much ownership, it forces you into that Corey Davis, Muhammad Sanu range a lot more frequently. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And I should also mention too, I believe, hopefully I'm not, yeah, it says here, these are centered around large field GPP mm-hmm. tournaments. So I've noticed this throughout the year that these uh, percentages are more in line with like the millimaker, the slant versus what I've noticed happening in the spy is that the top options, especially balloon, just how you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. So even though we see 37% here, we're probably going to see 55, 60% in the spy would be my guess as well. Yeah. And I think the same thing. And then when that happens, it make it's going to drive guys like Diggs, Hopkins, John Brown, those guys down. And it's going to raise up guys like Muhammad Sanu and Corey Davis. Cause it's really the only way to make things work. Yeah. So, I mean, simply from a unique roster construction standpoint, if you do end up getting three of these guys, say you get a a John Brown, one of the Minnesota receivers and one of the Seattle receivers, that's probably going to be a pretty unique construction, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think that's a very unique construction. I think that's sort of where I've came with the, if you fade Michael Thomas, which I don't recommend, uh, (laughs) like I said, I'm probably doing it. You can get a really unique lineup construction with these mid-tier receivers. So instead of going, let's say, Michael Thomas, Corey Davis, Muhammad Sanu, which would come in around seventeen, eighteen thousand 18000 in salary, you could go John Brown, DK Metcalf, Adam Thielen, come in around a similar type of price point, I think you're going to have way lower ownership in that range as well. But there's also different ways to go at this, and I think you could get into that range once as well with Michael Thomas if you do things a different way. So I think that that area is going to be really diluted, and that's where you can really make your week is in that mid-tier receiver range. Yeah, and I'm with you too. I don't want to fade Michael Thomas, but if I did, I mean, the construction I would probably be looking would be playing like a Kamara or even Latavius with the Saints defense and then bring it back with Thielen and try to maybe play the script that way. Does that line up? Yeah, I think that's exactly how I would approach it. If I was fading Michael Thomas, I think that makes the most sense because New Orleans is going to score points and it's really difficult for any of the other receivers to have a really good game. The only alternative, I think, with that area is like you just talked about Jared Cook, would be playing like Drew Brees, Jared Cook in a bring back situation. I like the idea more so of playing the running backs, hoping that the running backs sort of monopolize the touchdowns, or maybe, you know, Taysom Hill comes out and he gets his score in. Um, so, if, yeah, if you do that, I think that's a good way to bring it back without going Michael Thomas. But if you talk, let's say people are going to play Michael Thomas and Corey Davis. If Corey Davis really struggles and has like five and Michael Thomas has 25 and you all of a sudden went Will Full or not, sorry, not Will Fuller, DK Metcalf and John Brown, you could sort of offset some of what Michael Thomas does by what Corey Davis does if he doesn't have a good game. Uh, the only thing you'll have trouble with is if Corey Davis ends up having like 15 points, it's going to be really difficult to make things up. Yeah, I feel like that's been the story of my life in the spy this year is just making galaxy brain pivots uh, and then seeing the Steve Sims of the world pop off. And I'm like, well, I had no chance. Uh, Once the the cheap chalk hits, it is donezo for me. Um, We are going to transition to building a lineup. Before I do, I did want to tell you guys uh, there's something going on here with the SharpSide app. If you guys download that app, they are giving away free FanDuel credit. Uh, if you get a streak after five lock picks, after that, you'll start getting paid out 
those have to be minus 140 or less, but uh, that includes props, any other kind of spread over under bets you want. You can see here the payout on the screen. You guys can download the SharpSide app, start getting that free FanDuel money. All right, let's head back over to DraftKings. Sean, we are going to build a lineup Swolecast style. We always do this with the improv mentality of yes, anding each other's decisions, trying to, you know, build in correlations. And then I think it's also will be interesting once we're done to maybe go through some scenarios of, okay, we are dead. What are the late swaps in the, in the later games? Does that sound good to you? Sounds great. Well, you are of course the guest of honor. Uh, I like it because I feel like the guest can kind of put their stamp on this lineup. Maybe a guy you're taking a stand on, feel free to do a stack or a correlation. Uh, what are you, what's the first thing you're doing with lineups this week? So the first thing I think I'm going to do with my lineup this week is I'm going to play Michael Thomas. All right. I like, I that. can't fade him. I just think he's too good of a play. And I think you can get unique enough with lineup constructions away from Michael Thomas that it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that, you know, trying to say all season is just because you're playing Michael Thomas doesn't mean you're just eating all this chalk and you you don't have a chance to win. It just means you're going to have to make some tough decisions at other places. Correct. Um, Okay. I, my guy, and we didn't talk about him a ton. We were talking about the receivers, but I really, really like Devin Singletary. You know, they, they iced him, put him on ice for week 17 He had a 98% snap share the week before. Houston isn't anything special against the run. I know Watts coming back. I'm not too concerned about that because Singletary has such a robust bell cow role. I think the only thing he doesn't have is he loses some of the goal line carries. Um, But otherwise, I just love his floor and kind of ceiling combo here. What do you think about the Singletary play, even though you can't talk me out of it? Yeah, no, I love the Singletary (laughs) play. I think Singletary play is really strong. Um, in terms of running backs on this slate, I think Devin Singletary is probably right there among the top three in terms of who you can expect to have touches in this game. I think the Bills win this game a decent amount of the time, so I think Devin Singletary makes a decent amount of sense. Also, with going Singletary, I think we probably have to rule out playing a guy like uh, John Brown and Cole Beasley, despite me liking both of them, because if we're going to play Singletary, I think that – we need to sort of rule them out. I will bring it back, I guess, with Kenny Stills. Okay, I like it. Save us some money. Save us some money. We'll start getting down at this position. Um, For me, I think that we're looking at if Singletary has a good game, which I think is definitely a possibility, and I do sort of like the Bills. If they decide to take out of the game DeAndre Hopkins, I think Kenny Stills could have a good game. And like we talked about earlier, he's burned a lot of people in the year. I don't think a lot of people are going to play him. So I think I like Kenny Stills on a bring back with Singletary. And I like it too. If we think this Corey Davis ownership projection is off and he's going to be a lot higher owned, Stills is kind of, you're paying up an extra, what is my math, $800 to get contrarian there. Because I doubt as many people will do a Thomas Stills pairing as they would a Thomas Corey Davis. Correct. And I'm not even saying we rule out Corey Davis because you could also go that way as well. It gives you sort of an option to free up some salary elsewhere with going stills and Davis too. Yeah. Oh, so now the question is, do I make a stand at quarterback or do I pick another position and punt the decision back to you? I think I'm going to take the easy way out. And I think I'm going to put in Goddard here as I, as our tight end, because I just don't know how we can fade him uh, in a single entry contest like this right now with his role. Yep, I think Goddard's a really strong play, and he's the clear best tight end on the board by a decent amount. Um, So with how we're going about this lineup, I think we might need to be fading Kamara in those types. Not sure yet, but I'm going to take a stand on Travis Homer. Um, I think Homer's a really strong play this week. I think that we could be looking at 15 to 20 touches from him. I also like having him in the lineup because it gives us a late swap option of Marshawn Lynch if we want to go there at a later date and time. Yep. I need to take a quick break to reprimand Cobra Kai here in the chat, who's trying to talk about Kiki Kuti, who I played last week. And let me just say never, ever, ever again. So I I will have Devin ban you from the community, throw you out of the chat. 
refund you your Roto-Grinder subscription. If you ever mention Kiki Kuti again, I can't do it. Um, all right. So we have Homer. We have Goddard. We have a piece of uh, every team so far, uh, except the New England Patriots. And we talked about him earlier. I'm going to continue to punt the, uh, the conversation about quarterback. I'm going to get Nikhil Harry in here to save us some money, uh, give us some upside uh, more than what I've used to new. And I think at his ownership and kind of uptick in usage, I think he gives us a, you know, a reasonable ceiling here. Are you, are you good with that play? Yeah, I think Nikhil Harry's solid. I think that for that spot, based on how our construction was going, you're basically looking at Harry, you're looking at Sanu, or you're looking at Corey Davis. And I think Harry's going to have the least ownership of the three. So I think in terms of a GPP play, this is going to be a different style than what a lot of other people are going to play. Yeah. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, so let's see. If we're looking at this, from a defense perspective, I'm going to give you the quarterback perspective too. Okay. And I'll punt it back. Um, <laughs> it, it, we're just sort of going to keep going back and forth yeah. on that one. So for me, the Saints defense is the best defense. However, I'm sort of hesitant to play them because I think they're going to be really chalky. And I kind of want to play the Texans, but it's sort of going to be contrarian with what we're doing with Singletary. So it's a very tricky situation. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to go the bills and give us a completely different bill than what people are going to do. I think the bills might be higher owned on FanDuel, but if we think the bills are going to lead this game, Kenny Stills can still get his touchdown. Deshaun Watson is going to run into some sacks to the bills defense when the bills are leading this game. And I think the bills defense is going to be relatively under owned. So I think I want to go with the bills defense. All right. Yeah, I like it. And now we can just kind of talk through together. I think what this, you know, leaves us with decisions. Obviously if we went like with uh, Tom Brady, who's incredibly cheap at home and a little skinny stack Brady to Harry, that would leave us with 6,600, which gets us one of those Minnesota receivers or Metcalf if we'd like, or if we wanted to pay up, like let's just say we wanted to jam breeze here, breeze to Michael Thomas, that leaves us with 5,800, which is down in the Boston Scott, James White, Cole Beasley, Greg Ward range. So I think you could probably make cases for for either of those 2v2s. Do you have a lean uh, on those pairings? I actually have a possible third one that could be even less owned. Let's hear it. So I think we could possibly look at the Kirk Cousins, Adam Mm. Thielen combination. Ooh. I think that this is going to be low owned if we think that this game sort of shoots out, which I think it has the possibility of. The only hesitation here is we don't have Kamara, but you have Kirk Cousins. He's going to probably be the lowest owned quarterback on the slate or possibly one of the lowest owned. I'm a big quarterback, doesn't matter, minus Lamar Jackson person. Um, quarterbacks always are very similar in price and what they return. No quarterback really has the ability to go out there and put up 45 points unless it's Lamar Jackson. So if you play a guy like Kirk Cousins and he gets you 22 compared to a guy like Tom Brady that gets you 24, it really doesn't matter as much as the rest of your lineup. So I think any of those three options that we just ran through all make quite a bit of sense. Yeah. Yeah, so you can – if you did just say locked in Thielen – and wanted to get your exposure to Cousins that way. And kind of, I guess, mm-hmm. I get a little scared off, and that's why it makes it a good GPP play, but I get scared off by what if it's just a Saints demolition in the Superdome and you know Cousins has that kind of three-interception game and a lot of these stalled-out drives. It does leave you – who do you prefer? Um, again, you could make cases we have stacks with Wentz or Brady here. If you didn't go Cousins, still jam Thielen, who's your preference of Wentz and Brady? I think I would prefer Wentz. Wentz just has a bit more rushing upside. So maybe you get that one-yard rushing touchdown out of Carson Wentz, or maybe you get 30 rushing yards out of Carson Wentz. Plus, Philadelphia likes to throw the ball. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Brady could hand the ball off to Sony Michelle 25 times in this game. You really don't know. Um, so I think for me personally, I would rather go with uh, Carson Wentz. I think he also will be relatively under-owned, and they'd like to throw the ball. So for me, I probably would lean Wentz. Yeah, and because it seems like, and let me know if you agree with this or not, that outside of Breeze, who we have right now inching up to 20%, and Tannehill being kind of on the low end 
uh, it seems like the rest of these guys could all be in a very tight ownership window where you're not gaining much leverage by picking one over the other. Yeah, I don't think any quarterback really is going to be above 25% this weekend. So that like that's going to be a position that matters. The problem is, is um, a, a good example was last week. Last week you had Carson Wentz and Dak Prescott. Carson Wentz ran more times, threw more times, had more completion, more yardage than Dak, and lost by like 15. Because yeah. it all came down to the touchdown variance. So yeah. um, quarterbacks sort of just very, very variance-heavy when it comes to touchdowns. You really need to win the touchdown situation with quarterback, and the gap can be massive. Like, But you can't really project like which person's going to get the good touchdown variance compared to the bad touchdown variance situation. So when you look at this lineup, I, I see um, we have some sprinkled in, you know, lower own plays in Stills and Harry. We have some nice correlation, Wentz to Goddard with the homer on the other side, kind of projecting Seattle running the ball, Eagles passing, which is logical. We have a little mini Singletary Bills with a, a Stills comeback, and then we're jamming Michael Thomas and squeezing in Harry. To me, this seems like on the surface, it's not like a game stack or anything specific, but I, to me, it feels like it has the right correlations. Yeah, it, it, it does. And you, everything sort of makes sense within the lineup. Um, and even the only thing that doesn't really make sense, I guess, is we have Wentz, Goddard, and Homer. Homer's going to be more efficient if they're trailing. But that sort of just sort of makes sense if it's a shootout, that that lineup makes sense with Homer getting catches on the one side and then bring back with Wentz and Goddard. So everything we have makes sense from a bring back side on the other side of the game. It's not like we have a Jordan Howard and Marshawn Lynch in the same lineup type situation, something that just really does not make much sense. Yeah, and then how do you view, I've, uh, I've heard people talk about this as far as, you know, if you are doing like a defense in a running back, when it's okay to bring it back with someone. Obviously, you're hoping in this script for a Bill smash. I've seen people talk about, you know, you, you can have the ton, tight ends, the wide receiver threes that are racking up receptions. I guess I associate Kenny Stills a little bit as like more of the, the boom bust deep guy, but I don't know if that is actually even up to date. What's your thoughts about having Stills going against the Bills defense? I know you touched on it a little bit earlier. Yeah, realistically with what we're looking for in a defense is you're just looking for some sacks. The blitz, the Bills blitz a decent amount, and Watson is prone to taking sacks. And with Stills at 4,600, he could have six for 80 and no touchdowns and be fine. Um, so it's a situation where you can still get there. Or if he scores a touchdown, you're still okay. Uh, in pretty much all these defenses, you're going to expect to give up at least a touchdown. So you're not going to get the clean sweat out of it anyways. So if you get a guy like Stills that catches that goes six for 80 and a touchdown and the Bills win 24-7, you can have a really good situation with the Bills defense still where they're able to blitz Watson the whole game and Stills is still able to get there. Excellent. Well, uh, this was – I like this lineup a lot. I don't know if this will end up being my exact spy lineup, but I think it illustrates kind of what I like doing with this show, which is building a, a, a lineup that tells a coherent story because, as you know, your lineups must tell a story, Sean. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and uh, getting our mind right here for this wild card slate. Yeah, appreciate you having me. It was a lot of fun. I uh, had a blast doing it. Yeah, where else can people find you? I know you got, uh, obviously, on the Twitters, PSU fans, too. And then you got, you got a Patreon going for your college football stuff? No, I actually shut it down. It wasn't really worthwhile for me to give my information. <laughs> I found that it was more profitable for me not to have my information out there. Uh, because there's just not tons of good sources of college football information. So for me, a lot of people who played high stakes were uh, subscribing to my Patreon, and so it really wasn't worth my time. <laughs> you were you're cannibalizing your own interests there. I was. Well, that, that I feel like that's actually like a good success story because there are a lot of people I want to say in in the high stakes world that you know, the swings are, are so massive and, you know, to supplement an income you tout or, you know, you provide content for people and for you to go that route, they'll be like, no, 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 I'm actually not making money off of this. I think that's kind of a cool anti-story to the, to the usual ones you hear. Yeah. I, I used to do stuff with, um, with fancy labs and the action network and I was doing their college football product and I was doing the NHL product NHL. I didn't mind because I didn't really find that the info really dictated it, but if even preseason, I noticed I was doing uh, preseason football with Establish the Run, and we really drove ownership, and I had a really, really strong preseason. So with that 
with my information being out there, it sort of drives ownership on a place that people may not have been on had I not been giving the, the ability. So for me, I think this year I had seven or $800,000 in action in college football. If I'm giving out my information and that dictates me down two or 3% in terms of what my ROI would be, that's probably a much bigger hit than what I could get from touting. So it sounds like if you relaunch the Patreon, it's going to be at like a thousand dollar price point subscription. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) I'm not comfortable telling people they're not allowed in the Patreon. So in order for me to get worthwhile, I probably would need to charge like a thousand or two thousand dollars and have a similar amount of people in there. Yeah. Well, uh, that all makes sense. Thank you guys all for tuning in. Uh, I will do a bankroll challenge review on Monday of my spy lineup. Hopefully get back in the green. Actually, not hopefully. We will be back in the green. And, uh, and then, yeah, we'll probably be running this back again for the divisional round weekend as well. I appreciate you guys uh, sweating this season. And thanks again to Sean for coming on.